Welcome to the Business Influencer Podcast, where we will be interviewing and exploring the success stories of entrepreneurs, business leaders, senior policymakers, and getting insights from thought leaders around the issues of the day. Now, we'll be delving into and analyzing the latest news in tech, geopolitics, leadership, entrepreneurship, finance, economics, global business, property law, philanthropy, and life. Uh, this podcast is available on all platforms, but for those of you who prefer to watch, we have the Natural Media YouTube channel. Please subscribe and you can watch all the interviews. Uh, you can also follow the show's updates on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram. Please do leave a review as it allows us to get the word out and about. My name is Ninda Johal. I'm the co-founder of The Natural Group, the Signature Awards and co-publisher of the Business Influencer magazine and I will be your host for the show. In this episode, we speak to Jason Wara, an entrepreneur in the food sector, with whom we will discuss the role of entrepreneurship in society, the importance of diversity in the workplace, and as a leading wholesaler, his views on the future of the independent sector and the high street. So let's pop over and have a listen to the articulate Jason Wara. Good afternoon, Jason. Thank you very much uh, for agreeing to be interviewed for the Business Influencer Podcast. Now, for those of you who don't know Jason, uh, he's been uh, given an honorary doctorate, so he's a doctor. Mm-hmm. He was also honoured by the Queen with an OBE. He's the CEO of Lion Croft Wholesale Limited, a bit more of that later on. Uh, he's the chair of the West Midlands India Partnership. He's on the governing council of Aston University. He's a patron of the charity Acorns. He's the president of the Asian Business Chamber. He was until recently a non-exec director at the University Hospitals Birmingham. He was the youngest, and I know this because I used to bump into him regularly, he's the <laughs> youngest ever chair of the Institute of Directors and the first of an ethnic origin. Um, and he was previously director, and this will be interesting, we'll pull this out later, of East End Foods, uh, which was recently exited and sold to a private equity uh, company. It was 50 years old, so it was quite established. Yeah. Um, and of course, then Jason and his immediate family then purchased the wholesale division of the business that was sold. And again, we'll talk a bit about that. And um, so listen, lot to chat about. You're a high profile individual, certainly within this region. And so let's talk about all of that stuff. Um, so let's start with your early days, Jason. <laughs> now, you grew up in a family that was rapidly growing in terms of its business. Yeah. We just said it was 50 years old. So you must have been surrounded by people who talk business all the time. Yeah. How did that impact you? And how did it impact you then deciding what you wanted to do in your future career as a small kid growing up? Well, the funny thing is that when you're in a family business. Um, my family uh, was five family bra- branches. So it's my father and his four brothers who established East End Foods in Wolverhampton in the late 60s. Um, I grew up in the business, as you said. Uh, in fact, uh, when I was one, we we had our, our factory in Highgate in Birmingham, um, near the centre of town, and just at the other end of the car park of the factory was a small flat and my mum, dad, me, grandmother and my two younger uncles, we all lived together in this two bedroom flat. 
So being in family business, you, you actually are kind of born into it and you could never... Never leave. leave. <laughs> <laughs> You're always there, you know? So it's, it's second nature. Um, and, and that's, you know, and, and that's why you, you, it's inevitable that you end, up, you end up working in the family business, even though you might go and get an education, you, you, you want to kind of do your best you can do in terms of having the, the, the theoretical knowledge. Yeah. But actually, the family business is where you will all, always end up because it's in your blood. And, and did you do weekends or holidays? Were you were you were you at the, at the business during all those the time? Things? Yeah, yeah. Weekends, um, every weekend it was it was you know obligatory to be at the warehouse to to be um, doing things like stacking shelves or helping with the banking or just helping yeah. you know family around around the place. Um, and me and my cousins were all there. So the first and second generation of the business, the first being my father's generation, yeah. um, and the second generation, because the business was growing, it was it was normal for us to be helping out, you know. And anyone with a family business yeah. will probably tell you the same story. Now, um, I mean, I didn't say that you've, you've got a, a great education behind you as well, but people do say education's great, Going to a business school is great, but actually, you really learn by doing things. And and do you think during your earlier sort of as you were growing up, what do you think you learned? I know you were going to university, but what what, what skills did you learn? You probably didn't realize, but what skills did you learn before you then took sort of the top seat? What what did you learn in those sort of afternoons and weekends? And what sort of things did you pick up that perhaps a, a business school couldn't teach you? Well, I think I think. Look, first of all, on the education front, what it does is it gives you discipline. It gives you a a manner in which to um, create arguments or create uh, thought processes in a more succinct manner. So the education piece is very important. Yep. But like you said, um, in business, what happens is you learn um, customer relationships, the importance of of knowing the people that you trade with. Um, you know, and knowing them well, and, and, and serving that customer as best you can, uh, and that starts to get ingrained in you. You know, those disciplines that possibly maybe can't be taught at business school or or educational institutions. So the experience paired with the education becomes a very powerful force. It was, it was interesting. I, I did an MBA at Aston University, and, and my initial thoughts were as I went down the entrepreneurial route that I didn't really get much from the MBA. But it was interesting because I got into the non-exec role, which you yeah. did as well. Yeah. And so you started to look at the strategy and the culture. That's when you start to click yeah. that actually that education is good. Okay, so so you're growing up, uh, you're spending weekends here, you're spending holidays here, uh, you're working in a closely knit business environment. And, 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 you know, everybody tells me that family businesses have their own idiosyncrasies, something strange about family businesses. They have a lot of advantages, a lot of disadvantages. How did you find it? How did you find it growing up in a family business that was exploding really over those 50 years? To be honest to me, it was second nature. I didn't know any different. Um, only You can only assess and measure things in retrospect. Yeah. So when you look back on life and you say, well, look, you know, what was the benefit of family business? And what the fam family business does is, if you look at number of successful businesses around yeah. the world are family businesses, and what it does is you're tied in by the same value set. 
So the same value set of the family and everybody driving towards the same goal is what drives the success of the business. And because as a family you have a long-term view, yeah. so when you invest, for example, the building we're sitting in today, we spent probably 40% more than we needed to on the building. But the purpose of that was to make it future-proof. Yeah. The purpose of that was the long-term view and our confidence in our industry. So really speaking, the family business ethic and the value set brings you that long-term view. And then that translates into the consumer and customer relationship. For example, in East End Foods, we invested heavily in our production facility, the quality of the product we produced. And we, we were very proud of that as a family. And that showed in the product when the consumer opens the packet and they say, oh, wow, yes, this product sets itself apart from the next. So the family business to me, the ethics of the family business are most important. It's good business, not just, you know, it's that good long-term view. Uh, you're not looking at what profit we're making next quarter. You're looking at what are we going to do in 20 years' time? How do we build this thing in, into, into something that, you know, is beyond all of our imaginations? And that's, that's really what I think is the importance. And, and I think taking that long view, I think politicians could do the <laughs> understanding a bit of the long view rather than being driven by electoral cycles of four yes. or five years. Yeah. Yeah. Is to say, well, where do we have this country in 20 years' time? Because that's the way family businesses tend to think. They do. Yeah. Because they think of succession planning, the next generation, the generation after that. Yeah. And, and so they had attention to detail. And, and I think the other big thing possibly, Jason, you told me this is the name on top of the door is yours. Yeah. yeah. And people know who to point the finger to. Yeah. You live and breathe that organisation. Yeah. So, disadvantages? You know, yeah. Any disadvantages? disadvantages? Um, I think as the family gets larger, you get more generations involved. Uh, there are naturally complexities. If we imagine our own households, our own yes, families, right. there's always complexity. So, so um, that becomes slightly more challenging. But you know, you work through it, and and, and yeah. we, we did so very successfully. And hence, we became you know probably one of the most respected brands in our industry uh, around Europe. And, and we won't dwell on the brand too much, but it did become a great brand. I mean, you turn to anyone and say East End Foods, and everybody recognises the name and the brand. And, and maybe that's a result of the fact that it was family-driven because it is a powerful brand. It's well-recognised. You know, for the Warers, the, any of my family, uh, I mean, we're all doing different things now, but um, the minute someone says, I have your products in my cupboard, in the kitchen, it's the biggest feeling of pride that you can have is the fact that the consumer recognises your brand that you as a family have worked on for many, many years. And that... that that is the, the, the biggest payback you could you could want, you know. So you, the business exited. Yeah. It's brought by a private equity uh, operation, um, and we're just in the middle of uh, COVID, and you did the unthinkable. You, <laughs> Jason, and your family said, "Yep, yeah, we've exited, but actually we want to buy back the division, the wholesaling division." Now, what was the rationale behind that first? Why did you do that? Um, secondly, it was COVID. So it was, well, that's crazy because the future is so uncertain. Third, there's been, um, well, it's, it's obvious on the high street that it's, it's been damaged. The high street's been damaged. And fourth, do you think of groceries and you think of 
the big four plus the, the next tier of three or six. So what was the rationale? I'm just trying to, that's the context anybody outside would think, crazy idea. So what yeah. was the context and what was the decision? Why, well, why buy back? <clears throat> so East End Foods was, um, by the end of the, uh, the time we sold the business, it was around about £220 million turnover. The wholesale division of that 220 million was uh, 160 million, just shy of 160 million pounds turnover per annum, uh, employing uh, 200 people, uh, operating from a space uh, in Birmingham and the Black Country of of approximately uh, probably 25 football pitches worth of space, uh, supplying 5,000 retailers. Now, um, I'm in my early 40s. I couldn't bear the thought, it, from an emotional perspective, yeah, yeah. of moving away from the company or giving up the company. Other people in the family were at retirement age, so they naturally wanted to seek the exit uh, for, for their own reasons and yeah. age and so on. Um, I, couldn't, I couldn't bear to do that. So I wouldn't be able to drive past the, the factories and say, oh, I was involved in that business long, long ago. Yeah. Uh, so to me, it was it was we go back to that family and second nature bit that you, it's in your blood. I, I couldn't let go, and and that's why that's why I decided to um, to buy the business back. <laughs> Before I go into how does it feel mm. different, let me just go back to the fact that private equity is involved. Yeah. Now private equity has a people have a mixed view of it. Um, a lot of people will tell you that without private equity, uh, you wouldn't have the economic growth. Without private equity, you wouldn't have the number of jobs created. Without private equity and then try for efficiency and growing a business, you wouldn't have some of the big brands you have today. Um, so you sold out yeah. and then you bought back, but both processes involved private equity. What's your views on private equity? Was it something that was easy for you to do? Was it difficult to do? And what advice would you give to people who want to be, who are going to get into bed with private equity? Well, I think I think the last four years of, of my life with with the sale of East End Foods mm. and then buying back from the people that bought it, yeah, um, has been the most interesting period of my life, <laughs> yeah. um, and I mean that in the politest way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's been the most challenging period and it's been the period that I've learned the most. Ah, so, And is that because it was an environment that you were so challenged yes. by nature then you're learning? Yeah, you're, you're learning a, as you go along. You're yeah. in a dark, well not dark, yeah. you're in an uncomfortable, unknown territory. Yeah, I mean, look, private equity is simply a funding vehicle yeah. for businesses, for people that want to exit yeah. and so on. Investments into businesses and they grow. Yeah. And they grow because they they make those businesses more efficient. They yeah. cut costs and so on. Right. Um, so there's nothing wrong with private equity. No. And they boot, it, and by the way, they also bring in extra investment as well. Exactly. Um, you know, it's it's one of those things. They buy and sell businesses for a living. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. And you've got to learn on the hoof, pretty much. Yeah. yeah. And say, what do I? What's my vision? What's my target? And how do I get there? Now, the the important thing here was to have very good advisors and yeah. I had very very good advisors we had very good advisors for the sale and we also had very good advisors for the buyback of the business um, and that really helped yeah. with the process and it made it a lot easier than it could have been um, we're very proud as a, as a family so it's me my wife my mom and dad and my younger brother now in the wholesale business 
and that's under the, the name Lioncroft Wholesale okay. Limited. Yeah. Um, I, I, I have to say, private equity-wise, very challenging, as you'd expect. There are professionals in their, in their <laughs> field, just as I could say I'm a professional in the yeah. food industry. Absolutely. Um, and they push you, but in a good way, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and you have to go through the process and you have to make sure that you do the best you can. And that's all you can do. You can only yeah. do the best you can do to make sure that you get exactly what you want. I think the other thing people say to me is um, you've got to get your own house in order yes. before you talk to private equity. Yeah. You need to make sure your processes are in place, yeah. that there's a record of a well-run organisation because that's what they're looking for and that's what drives the price. Yeah. And that you have a team in place yeah. uh, and, and they're going to then, if they're buying, they're moving on. So, yeah, yeah, really good. So, so my next question is, uh, so before you bought it back, you were part of a big family. Yeah. Suddenly, you're on your own. Yeah. How did you feel suddenly the day the keys, in figuratively speaking, were handed to you? How, how did did it feel any different? Did you feel oh every decision now is resting on my shoulders? Everything that happens from now on, it's not shared amongst the family. Yeah. This is my decision, my judgment, yeah. and I'll be measured against it. I think I think that it depends on what you like as a character. I'm, I'm quite a determined person. Okay. What we did was, um, if you think about carving a business out of another business, yeah. and you talk about systems and you talk about the yeah. processes involved, yeah. we were a 160 turnover, 160 million pound turnover startup. Yeah. <laughs> all of our managers, all of our execs were all brand new. Wow. So the whole of the, the operational and organizational aspects of the business are brand new, right? And what do you do? You have a vision. Yeah. You know where you want to take the business. Mm. The first thing you need to do is go and hire the right people. Yeah. And we're very fortunate that we found some very, very good people from big organizations who have come and joined us and you know we're we're in a position that you know my HR, the accounts function, the buying function, everything is all brand new, and we all get on very very well. There's a light culture. There's a there's a there's a a real energy about the place, and really part of the half of the uh, challenge is the culture of the organisation, building the right culture, building the energy level. Our organisation has the values of honesty, opportunity, power, and energy. So always be honest in all you do. Take the most of the opportunities that present themselves to you. Go and find those opportunities to grow the business. Have the power to do so. So you've got to, you've got to have that kind of gusto about you to make it happen. And energy, obviously, self-explanatory you need to be energetic yeah. to to make it happen, and you'll see that those four words spell hope. Nice. So so, and all my my team are aware of these these values, and the vision is for us to be the most respected wholesaler in our industry. But you personally didn't feel any different. You didn't feel that, that, that suddenly the weight on your shoulders just just feel a bit more heavier mm -hmm. because you couldn't dis I enjoy that respect. Oh, okay. I love it. Okay. I love it. It's it's honestly it it is. It feels like a completely new challenge. It feels like a, 
as I said, there's a new energy, there's a new culture, there's, there's a, a new vibe about the business, and, and that will take us quite far. So, so you've spoken about a new management team, a new culture, new values, yeah. you know, and a new vision. Yeah. How did diversity come into picking that team, picking the people who are going to now support you in sharing that vision? You know what I'm saying, it's, you know, yeah. how do you get that mix right? So what we have to understand is that diversity, be it gender diversity or racial diversity or diversity in terms of sexuality, are absolutely common sense points to commerciality, right? So by having a diverse group of people, you have different opinions. And by having different opinions, you create colour and vibrancy in an organisation. So when you make a decision, you make it with all these different opinions coming in, different viewpoints, and that gives you a more quality result. So the diversity is not a tick box. The diversity is because it makes perfect sense. And, and, and can you see the impact of that? Can you see the impact Absolutely. of that? Absolutely. We've grown the business uh, by 15% in 10 months. Wow. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a great financial decision. It's It's... From a commercial perspective, anybody that doesn't look at diverse groups and diverse leadership, it's, it's just, it, it, they'd be making a mistake. That's, that's how strongly I feel about it. Picking that up, picking up the fact that you did the transaction when you did, despite the fact that the context I gave you and, and you must have had people saying you were crazy. You must have had people <laughs> <Every day>. say, <laughs> you're crazy, pocket yeah. your money, go and do something else, don't go back to... But clearly the entrepreneurial and, and, and the, sort of the drive to do even better than before made, made you make that. So, so let me ask you then, so that context I gave you, how is the independent sector? You, you spoke about wholesaling and supplying. I think it's 5,000, I think you said. Yeah, roughly 5,000 retailers. Yeah. So, so, so what is the future of retailing in post-COVID, mm. in your eyes? Uh, and what do you think the trends have been that led you on to that decision and that faith uh, that you obviously think the high street's going to maintain a presence? Mm. You clearly think, despite the prevalence of the big supermarkets, that the independent sector clearly must stick around. So what does the future look like for independent retailers? Because that's where your future lies. Just, just interested, really. I think there's a move towards independent businesses generally. So the, as consumers, what, what we like to do business with people we know. Yeah. Right. If everything is homogenised, and we, I mean, I mean, look, the big multiples and the Amazons of the world have a part. Naturally, have a big part to play yeah. in every market. That's yeah. that's just you cannot contest that point. But the independent retail sector, are, there's a vibrancy there and there's, a, there's an individuality that consumers enjoy dealing with. The difficulty in the independent retail sector is the level of investment that people are making into their businesses or able to make into their businesses. So from our perspective as a wholesaler, as a, as a supplier to mm. the independent trade, it's very important to support those people to help improve their knowledge, improve their capacity to reinvest into the business. Now part of that is the prices you charge, the deals you give them, the promotional package you offer, but actually quite a big part is the support you offer the business owners, 
the relationship you have with those business owners and that as, from a friendship perspective yeah, yeah, you're yeah. able to advise them and help help them out as, as much as possible and that's that's how we've we've always run the business really so, so if you have 5,000 I'm just curious um, with 5,000 that's a, that's a lot of people to deal with so do you pick a top 10 that you help a top 20 or anybody who gives you a call or you just no I think I think you you deal with obviously your regulars na- yeah. naturally yeah. Um, but you also you also um, are in we, we're in constant communication with with our, our kind of broader customer yeah. base um, you know they're, they're, they're all pretty regular people and, and if you look at our depots our depots are the busiest depots in in our industry we believe the reason being we look at we benchmark yeah and we look at the performance of our place and say well you know we're doing we're doing okay touch wood with the grace of god um you know so it's 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 important to have that relationship then obviously other aspects nowadays are the power of technology yeah so we're investing a lot into technology now we're a little bit behind the curve because yeah. cash and carry wholesaling is a traditional business yeah, it is. um but yeah we've, we've got some great people on board from big multinational companies who are now re-engineering and redeveloping our, our IT base. So you see growth then on the high street? Because obviously... I do, yeah. You, because you're, you're saying you want yeah. to grow your business and yeah. that relies on the high street and yeah. independence growing. Is, yeah, is that I, right? I, I definitely... I'm, I'm, I'm very confident in the performance and the, and the prospects for the independent trade. As I said, the caveat to that is how do we help them to invest in their own businesses? Just like we are an independent family business, we've got to help the other independent family yeah. businesses to grow and succeed. And within that circle, everyone gets successful. Yeah, because if everybody's successful, then yeah. you all get a piece of that yeah, big pie. you get a piece of the pie. Um, so you're, um, you've got a lot of lines there as we walked a lot. 30,000. <laughs> so which means you're buying a lot of products. Yes. Um, and you're shifting a lot of product. Yeah. So, so Brexit was something that obviously was quite a major event. And, and, and businesses are something they benefited, something they didn't. Where, does that, where did Brexit place you? I think it's made life difficult in terms of exports okay. to Europe. Okay. Um, so our export business has, has suffered as a result. Uh, we'll work through it because it's, I think it's more to do with the fact that the viewpoint isn't clear yet on what has to be done sure. to export to different countries yeah. so the minute we get to grips with that and I know a lot of colleagues in the industry are facing the same kind of issues um, it's important that you know government does something to help the export side uh, we don't import so much anymore because uh, the manufacturing side of the business obviously is, yeah. is, is separate now but um, yeah the, the export side is, is challenging and there's this um you know, there's a school of thought that inflation's running away. Have you, see, have you seen that where you are? Have you seen I think prices? there is inflationary pressures. Yeah. Um, naturally, <clears throat> where it's more difficult to get supply, the costs will, will increase. So there may be a bit more inflation. Or Actually, to be honest, if we get our act together, it might actually settle because the, the challenges we're facing today as importers, exporters, will wither away if, if the agenda's you know dealt with properly before we move on to just leadership just a, a, a general <coughs> a comment on general confidence uh, you know we've had brexit that was affecting a lot of confidence and then covid came along 
Now, on our food did relatively well, and you're sort of in the food sector. <coughs> yeah. How do you measure confidence post-Brexit and post-Covid, hopefully, with the roadmap looking clearer? I think that Covid paled Brexit into almost insignificant for a while. Insignificance yeah. for a while. Yeah. Um, the Brexit challenges. I know that there was a, there was a big push to get Brexit done. But I don't think that I don't think the government really looked at the depth of detail as to what does get Brexit done mean? Mm. You know, what does it mean to the people on the ground that are running yeah. businesses? They haven't looked at that, which is which is bad. Yeah. Um, so, as I said, once we get more into the, the depths of the detail as to how do we keep these businesses flowing and, and exports flowing out and imports coming in, it'll settle. Um, challenges COVID wise, you know, we had a. a a big push and panicking, panic buying yeah. last year, as you know, <laughs> yeah. um, affected all all yeah. retailers, uh, and that was that was tough. That was that was a tough challenge because the suppliers struggled to supply. Yeah. You know, we weren't getting the stock quick enough to sell, um, and you know, we worked through it. We, we've we've, as an industry, as independent traders, we've we've worked through it. I think quite successfully, and it's settling down. You know. Um, and the challenges are probably, God forbid, here to stay for a while, I would have thought. Uh, we just got to work through them. What about you then and leadership? Um, you're busy. I know you're busy. Uh, the number of times we have to miss each other because you're really, <laughs> really busy. So, so it's astonishing that not only over the years have you been a, one of the sort of prominent directors at East End Foods, but you've done, I, I read the names out of some, just some of the roles you've done. Yeah. What prompted you to be doing these, what I call non-exec, non-remunerative roles? What drove you to do those things despite having an incredibly busy diary? What, what's, what's, the, what's, what's the rationale behind that? From a, spe- from a selfish perspective, it's developing myself, learning. Learning from people out there who have achieved more than I've achieved. Um, mixing with the right people, yeah. you know, yeah. which you always grow from. Yeah, of course. Uh, and you know that because you've done so many things and we've sit on so many boards <laughs> yeah, together. Correct. Um, now, as time goes by, you, you get offered, you know, yeah. roles left, yeah. right and centre. Yeah, you kind you of, do. you get into a position where you, you, you almost can't say no to certain things. Yeah. Um, but it's enjoyable and that learning and that, that contribution back to society is good. The, the, the thing about the family business was that it's really easy to be in a bubble. Yeah, you know, sit in the family business bubble and say, "Well, I know, I know it all." You know, I don't need to go out there and learn from anyone, and that's a very selfish uh, and small-minded way of thinking. So my objective was to go and learn, to go and pick up, and mix and give back where I can. And I think, you know, over the years, having been involved in so many things, I think it's a bit of both. You know, I've, I've given back, and I've also actually gained a lot personally myself. Yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, listen, I think it's completely agree with you. And, and I think you do learn a lot from people who are different, you different industries, yeah. different sectors. Yeah. If, um, if somebody was, I didn't anticipate asking this question, but you just drove me to it. If somebody wanted to become a non-exec director, what sort of skill set should they be looking to develop to become one? Because I, I do, I'm sure you do. I get quite a few phone calls from people saying, listen, I want to become a, a, a Ned. Yeah. Actually, I, th- I think sometimes they're not even sure why. Yes. Because I ask them that, well, why? Yeah. Why do you want to do that? 
I mean, you've got to give it two great reasons. It's amazing how very few people think of that. I don't know why they do it, but you're right. You, you know, you learn a lot. You give something back. Yeah. What sort of skill set do you think today's Ned? If you know, you you've sat a number of boards, you've chatted with. What do you look for around the board? What do you look for from a Ned? Well, I think any good board is made up of different people from different backgrounds, right? Yeah. Be it industry, be it you know your background culturally, and so on. Um, you've got to have a very clear decision making and analytical mind. So what's the NED there for? The NED is there to hold the board to account to a degree um, and challenge the board. On boards, as you know, there's very often groupthink. Yeah. So all the boards are the same background and they, and they sit there and they, co- you know, they come up with the same solutions to the problems. What the NED is there to do is to challenge that thinking to say, oh, have you thought of this? You know, have you have you have you considered these risks? It's a you know, it's a big responsibility. There's a lot of there's a lot of um, risk involved in being director uh, nowadays. So, I think if anything, it's that kind of analytical aspect and, and being able to challenge and use your background and your you know career knowledge to to then help those boards develop and think differently and move quicker. And, um, so, 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 so today, what, what two top skills do you think you'd want a Ned to be developing if they wanted to become a Ned? What, what sort of sort of key key do you think skills they should be looking at developing? <clears throat> the ability to challenge is is super important. Yeah. Um, so not being afraid to put your viewpoint out there, and I think <clears throat> picking up information and sucking in that information very, very quickly. Because a lot of these boards, you know, are you know, <laughs> four or five hundred pages of information you've got to, you've got to try and take in. Um, and, and, and that is, you know, there's a fair bit of reading involved. I, I think the other observation I have before we move on to the next question is, um, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that's where the education, by the way, comes in. You know, that education at university, because you're, yeah. you're, you're not trained, but, you know, you get used to being able to understand a lot of information very quickly and use, use the word succinct yeah. and get straight yeah. to the point. Yeah, get to the point, yeah. And, and I just say to prospective uh, non-execs is, get to the point, yeah. for God's sake, don't take all day. <laughs> um, and also, be prepared to work with a bunch of people you've never met before Yeah. and, and be able to make sure you manage, not... Not say too little, but then not say too much. Not yeah. when to say, no what to say, to, when yeah. to say. Yeah. So, uh, now, one of the roles I want to pick up, and that's what I was picking up in non-exec roles, is you're the chair of the West Midlands India Partnership. Yeah. Now, that role became even more important, I think, post-Brexit. Yeah. Because, obviously, we're looking for the UK to widen its export agenda, its inward investment agenda. You became its inaugural chair. Yeah. Um, why why did you agree to do that? And secondly, some people might say, sounds like another crank door to me. So, so uh, over to you, Jason. So, post-Brexit's the operative word, I think. <clears throat> um, what trade relationships can we tie up as a nation with the world's most successful countries? You cannot ignore the power, the scale, the potential of the Indian economy. Um, and it's very important because there is a relationship there historically, be it positive or negative, mm. and, and, and each 
Asian consumer or Asian person, individual will, will, will have their own opinion on that. Yeah. It's important for us in Britain to open the doors and firstly trade with as many partners as we can yeah. successfully. Yeah. But look at India as one of those, one of the biggest partners of all. And already in the first year we've been around, um, we've brought in a number of businesses into the West Midlands who have chosen to invest. They could invest in Poland, they could invest in France, Germany, and so on. We've cho- they've chosen to invest in, the, in England, in the UK, but more importantly, in the West Midlands. Now, why the West Midlands? Because the quality of the people we've got, the historical, industrial um, you know, background that we have, we were the home of the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. So, historically, this is a very good place to do business. Now, what we have to do is we have to encourage those businesses to come in and actually take the best of our West Midlands businesses over to India. And the doors open, right? So the doors open. They want to trade. They want to do business with us. Why wouldn't you? You know. So I think, that, I think West Midlands India Partnership is a very important vehicle to make that happen. And we're already seeing, because you sit on the board as well, we're already seeing the, the results of that, that labour um, or those efforts that are coming to the West Midlands. <clears throat> I, yeah, I think other people have asked sort of similar question. And, and you're absolutely right. You have to be proactive in today's environment. You can't yeah. wait for things to happen. Yeah. And you identify the fastest growing economies, and, and India is one of them. Uh, and we haven't made use of that relationship because we've got an indigenous population whose first generation came from there. And I, th- I don't think we made use of it, and I think this is hopefully one vehicle that we can. And but it's amazing the amount of people that are interested in getting to the subcontinent. So. But if you, look at, if you look at our Asian population here in, in the Midlands or <coughs> in the UK, we're 4% of the population, we're 9% of the GDP. Yeah. We're, we're, we're an entrepreneurial yeah. community. 4% of the population, 9% of the GDP is phenomenal so there is a natural link between india and the asian diaspora indian diaspora in in the midlands so it makes it easier and the other thing we've got to our advantage here in the uk is the intellectual property the ability to produce technically produce stuff be it automotive battery energy you know, there's so many industries on there. And that ability is, is what people are looking at, actually. And I think interesting in the West Midlands and, and the UK, in terms of balance, um, you know, we've got some life sciences, we've got some yeah. great, great uh, sectors here. And as you said, these businesses and entrepreneurs, including you, are valuable because they employ people. Exactly. They employ a lot of people. Yeah. And, and I think the West Midlands in a partnership is just another, yet another channel for us to grow this economy yeah. uh, and people like you leading from the front. So, so let's now finally come to you. Plans for you then. So you have a startup you've taken up. <laughs> uh, you took a big decision, very yeah. big decision. Uh, you agreed that a lot of people said, don't do it, you're crazy. But you took the decision. You've got some great growth plans. Uh, what does the future look like for you for the next five years or so? And of course, you still sit on all these boards that I can see. What does the future look like for you before I finish with the last question? I think that I think it's important to be known for something. 
um, be known to be a contributor to society, positive contributor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think when I look at Lioncroft as a business, um, you know, there's huge potential to this business. And that's why, you know, I think personally, I think we can, we can grow this business three to fourfold, um, supplying a broader range of customers um, in different industries as well. So there's a lot of potential. And I'm very excited by that proposition. Um, you know, having bought back the, the business that I've always been involved in is a matter of great pride for me. But actually, it's a matter of probably more pride for my father, to be honest. He seems to have completely <laughs> been re-energised by this whole... And it's a great uh, singer, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great singer. But that's another and, story for another day. And, and my, wife, my wife's with me as our chief oper operating officer. She's very good at strategy. She's very yeah, good at strategy. Yeah, very good, very good. So, so that, you yeah. know, as I said, there's an energy here. And I think that, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm very focused, single-minded on building this business as far as I can take it, really. So what does success look like for you? That's a difficult question. Mm -hmm. um, success from a perspective of society is what difference can I make or my family make to society, to the people that probably aren't as fortunate as me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that would be a, a, a big deal to, to, to be very much involved. And that's why I do a lot of the community stuff and charitable yeah. stuff that I do. Yeah. Um, from a business perspective, I'm looking at it from the perspective of the legacy of my family. Yeah. And the fact that we've been in business and we started with you know three pound capital yeah. in the 60s, and my family built it to such a such a great degree, taking that legacy, building on it. Yes, in a different way. Yeah. But building and 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 being a good example that you know, you managed to work hard and, and develop as far as, as as you possibly could. So those are the two really I can think well, of. So, so three tips then for entrepreneurs. Somebody who's thinking about becoming an entrepreneur has a lot of people saying, "Don't, don't be crazy, don't do it." <laughs> um, what would be your three tips then? I think, first of all, you have to be hardworking, and hardworking beyond um, beyond the nine to five. So there is a tendency that people say, "Oh, it's five o'clock, work-life balance." Yeah, I don't think that quite works for yeah. entrepreneurs. Yeah. They live and breathe the business. Yeah. So being hardworking, being single-minded, focused, focused, really focused. You know, people will tell you. You can't do it. It's not possible. Don't be silly. Take the easy route. You've got to be single-minded and say, for some reason, I want to do this, and I'm going to I'm going to do it. You know. So that's the, that's the second thing. And then I think, finally, it's it's really, um, you know, you, you, you being hardworking, being single-minded, and having a vision that's way down the line. Because I'm a great believer that you, you make your own destiny. And you make your own destiny by working hard, by putting in the extra efforts. The results are up to God. Yeah. God, God will, you know, I mean, I'm obviously certain people don't believe in God, but, <laughs> you know, I am a believer. In, and, and I believe that the work is up to you. The results are to a higher power. Okay, I'm going to leave you with an awkward question now. Yeah. Give me three 
words people would describe you? <laughs> God. <laughs> um, I probably should ask the last question. Three words. How would they describe you? I've got my three words, but I won't. I won't. Well, you might as well say no, it, because no, no. I can't think of anything. <laughs> no, what would um, people say? <laughs> um, I really, that is actually a harder question than, than, than meets the eye. Hardworking. Yeah, I agree with um, that. I know that because the amount of times we miss each other on phone calls, nine o'clock, ten o'clock, you bring back. Yeah. I know that. Yep, you are very hardworking. Um, honest. Yeah, I agree with that one as well. Um, and sincere, I suppose. No, I suppose that. I'm not. I'm not <laughs> doubting the fact that I'm sincere. I'm just saying, <laughs> sincerity is one of the one of the words. I, I think I also find you very methodical. Very yeah. precise, and, yeah. and I know that from the way you run the board. So you're very precise and very methodical. Yeah. But I, I wouldn't disagree with any of them. Now, when I walked in, you offered me a piece of pizza, <laughs> and now that we're just about to finish, yeah. if you've got some pizza left, yeah, yeah, it's on the way. I might just grab that piece. Yeah. Jason, it's been brilliant. Thank it's you. been thank yeah, you very yeah. much. Pleasure. An interesting journey, full of yeah. twists and turns, as you said. Um, and I'm going to leave you with the listeners and, and the viewers with one thought. Um, I think Jason put it brilliantly, what will people remember you by? And they'll remember you by what you've done for the very community you serve and live in and work in. So, and you're Hopefully. definitely um, a great example of that. And we look forward to seeing your feature in the next issue of the Business Influencer. Jason, thank you. thank you very much for the hospitality and your time. Thank you so much. Hope you enjoyed uh, this episode, and if so, please do leave a review. It all helps in promoting the podcast. Oh, and by the way, have a great.